I'd like to begin this morning by reading from the first chapter of Ephesians. And today I'm going to start reading the first ten verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. As we look at this letter to the Ephesians, I have expressed that my desire is to be able to encourage you that you would see the majesty of God's purposes and his plans that have been revealed to us in the gospel. And that you would see the, uh, the riches of the calling that God has for his people. And that through seeing those things, through knowing those things deep in your soul, that you would be filled with God's fullness. And that that would overflow into transformations in our life, in our actions, in our words, in our relationships. And that would all together redound to the glory of God. And uh, I, in studying this letter, I was moved by several themes that, that were coming out. And I'll, I'll just mention what some of those are so you can kind of see my thinking in my studies I saw, uh, we see holy ones, saints, spiritual warfare, the union of heaven and earth, salvation by grace, oneness with God, the body of Christ, the mystery of Christ, the new society that God is building, and then prayer also. There's a theme of prayer that runs throughout the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, it, is, it is filled with prayer, with praise to God, with prayer for the saints. And the things that Paul prayed for them, for us, are the things that I desire that we would be moved by as we look into this letter, this book of the Bible that God has given us. We saw yesterday about how God has uh, called a people, and set them apart to be holy and dedicated to his service. And that is the description of the people that this letter is written to, to the saints at Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. One of the things I didn't say about what it means to be holy last night 
is to be holy is to be chosen by God. Verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. All the examples I gave last night about holiness, how God set apart people for a special calling and purpose, like he set apart the Levites. All of these cases were people that were chosen to that by God. They did not elect themselves to that role. You were either chosen to be a Levite or you were not. It was not something that you uh, woke up one day and decided, you know what, I want to try out for being a Levite. It was a calling and choosing of God that he selected them for it. And in fact, there were occasions at times where there were people that rose up and said, we, we think that we should be able to do this and, and take on this position. And, and, and God uh, confronted that and judged that because to be holy is to be called and chosen by God for that purpose. As Jesus said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you would bear fruit. And uh, much of the beginning of this letter is talking about what God's plan and purpose was for his people and his calling, and it begins with the will and the purpose and the choice and the foreordained plan and intention of God, which is according to the good pleasure of his will. And understanding that will help us understand uh, why salvation is completely by grace. We also saw how uh, holiness is represented in the, in the temple that God gave in the Old Testament He gave the temple, the tabernacle first in the time of Moses and later the temple in Solomon's day. This was a physical representation on earth of heaven itself. And it was a holy place. It was a set-apart place. All of the vessels, all of the furnishings, everything that it was made of, they were special. They were set apart for that special purpose. There was a table and it was made of wood, and there were vessels inside, and there were instruments that were used for the service. And you might say, if you, if you say, looked at the bowls and the serving dishes and the flesh hooks used for the sacrifices, and you were to look at one of those, in appearance, physically, visually, it might have looked like any other vessel, any other flesh hook. Its physical appearance may not have been any different. It's composition may not have been any different, but it was holy because it was chosen and set apart by God and dedicated to a special service. That's kind of like us. You know, we're, we're, if you have been chosen and called by the living God, it's not because you were any better than anyone else. It's not because by nature you were inherently any different, any smarter, any wiser, any more moral, any more useful to God than anyone else because of anything in yourself, but because God chose you and called you and set you apart, he has dedicated you to a sacred calling. We in the church have been dedicated to a sacred calling. Not because we were any better, 
but because the God who called us has set us apart for that purpose. And I want to look at this a a little bit for a moment here. Back in Exodus, it describes this uh, building of the, the tabernacle. And in Exodus 25... It speaks of this. It says, uh, this verse is 8 and 9, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The, this can be the kind of language that sometimes when you're reading through Exodus or Leviticus and you're just maybe overwhelmed with all of the strange, very foreign things that are going on. And it can be hard to get the picture in, in, in our minds. So it's good to sometimes focus in and see how What's said here, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God's intention, his purpose was to dwell with his people. To be in communion and fellowship with them. To be present with them. And he says, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Now that's, that's really curious language. After the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof. I've, that's kind of str- What does he mean? Make it after the pattern of the tabernacle. That is, God showed Moses something that Moses was patterning what was built on the earth was, was uh, patterned after what was revealed and shown to Moses. And then they go on to build the Ark of the Testimony and a mercy seat of pure gold. And then on the two sides of the mercy seat, there were cherubim that were, were carved on the sides of the mercy seat. There was the table of showbread. There was the, the seven candlesticks. And, after, and, and all the other furnishings of the tabernacle and the holy place. And after they had uh, described all these things, God reiterates to Moses, he says, and look this is verse 40, that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. God was uh, showing Moses what to make because what Moses was making on earth was a picture, a, a physical manifestation of something heavenly. Something in heaven itself, which which is more elaborated to us in the book of Hebrews. But uh, he would say later in Exodus, and there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And then in Exodus 40, we have sort of the consummation of all of these things. start reading in verse 16. And remember, this is a holy God we're speaking about. A holy God, set apart from all, above all, exalted beyond all, and he is promising to come and make his dwelling with people. With people. And then in Exodus 40, Verse 16, it says, Thus did Moses according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. Uh, Very important. Moses was not um, inventing 
his own way of worshiping God. He was worshiping God in the way that God had given freely as a gift to him, that God had revealed to him. And it came to pass in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. And Moses reared up the tabernacle and fastened his sockets and set up the boards thereof and put in the bars thereof and reared up his pillars. And he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent above upon it as the Lord commanded Moses. And he took and put the testimony into the ark and set the staves on the ark and put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the covering and covered the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. And it goes on and it describes the table and the bread and the candlestick. And each one of these things is set up just as God had commanded. And this is in a tabernacle, a tent. It's a dwelling place. God is signifying to Moses and to all the nation of Israel, to his people, that there's now a place where God is going to come and to dwell in their midst. The holy God in this holy, set-apart, sacred place. And then uh, verse 28, And he set up the hangings at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar and the uh, burnt offerings, the laver, and they wash their feet, their hands, and they make themselves ready to go in. Then verse 32, And when they went into the tent of the congregation, and when they came near unto the altar, they they washed as the Lord commanded Moses, and he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See, this is heaven and earth being united together. The very presence of a holy God coming down to dwell in the midst of men. God is a holy God. And and He, in His mercy and kindness, has chosen to come and make His dwelling place among us. But if we consider this, we would see that there's a problem that needs to be solved. There's a big problem that needs to be solved for a holy God to come and to dwell with us. Because we're we're not holy. We're unclean. We're in need of salvation and of deliverance. And the book of Ephesians is all about salvation by grace. So so let's look at at chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10. For by grace, he says, you are saved. This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Saved by grace, 
through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. We're, we'll go back a little bit and we'll look at some of the context of this. But, but this is being declared to these people. And remember who the recipients of this letter are. They are the believers in Jesus Christ. They are described as having been saved. And as you read through Ephesians, and, and you can notice this, the next time you read through this letter, notice all of the past tense statements about the people being written to, and notice, uh, compare them with the present tense statements. Many of the past tense statements are earlier in this second chapter of Ephesians, and they describe if, if you have indeed been saved, by the grace of Jesus Christ, they, deci- they describe where you have come from, what you have been delivered out of, what state and condition you have been delivered from. So let's go back. This chapter begins, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's talking about the devil again. That was where we had our allegiance. What we were serving when we were walking in sin and we were not walking in agreement with God's ways. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he hath loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus." So let's, so let's take a moment here to, to just summarize all of these past tense statements that describe the condition before we were saved. And, and then we'll look at, at the current condition. And, and every, single, every single person, every single person here, every single person in this world either is, is in one of these states or in the other. And, 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 and you'll see that if you are in the, the state of being dead in trespasses and sins, the only deliverance from that is through Christ. The only hope I can present before you for being delivered from that is in Christ. In the power of Christ, in the person of Christ, in his work, that is, that is, that is all, the, that is everything that I can call you to look to and to hope in to deliver you from that state that, that is described here. So, so running through some of these statements, you, these are statements all throughout the book of Ephesians that speak about our past state. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air. You had your conversation in times past in the lusts of your flesh and in the desires of your mind, of your flesh and your mind. You were by nature 
the children of wrath. You were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. You were far off. You walked in the vanity of your mind. You were corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. You were darkness. Summing it all up, we see the condition, our natural condition, apart from the grace of God intervening in our life, is utterly hopeless apart from God. We are destined for destruction, plus we are exiled from the life of God, plus we are utterly unable to please God or to deliver ourselves from that that condition. And it is in that condition and that state in which Christ comes to save us and deliver us from that. It is in the depth of that condition. It's not when we've pulled ourselves halfway out. It's in our utter depravity, in our utter death, that state that Christ comes to us and delivers us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, he says. By grace you are saved. And so, then we can consider our present condition, summarized in the very third verse of this letter, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Statements like that, are, they're difficult to wrap the mind around. They're difficult to express because it, it is so boundless. It's so extensive. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We are, we are being clued in to the reality that the magnitude of what God has done for you is so vast. It's so great and limitless that you have access to blessings unimaginable. And then it goes on throughout Ephesians to describe the state of the believer. He says, you are holy and without blame. You are accepted in the beloved. You have redemption through his blood. You have the forgiveness of sins. You have obtained an inheritance. You have been quickened, that is made alive. You have been raised up together to sit in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. You are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You are made nigh, made near by the blood of Christ. You are reconciled unto God in one body by the cross. You are the household of God. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are a habitation of God through the Spirit. You are given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. You are created in righteousness and true holiness. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. God has forgiven you, and you who were darkness are now light because of what Jesus Christ has done. 
And, and, and in summary, a complete transformation of our status and our condition by the gift and the power of God. And so it is hopefully easy for us to understand that it is by grace we are saved. It is by the undeserved, generous gift of God that our salvation has been brought about. By grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And the, way, the whole way the letter to the Ephesians is, ra- is, is laid out reflects this. The relationship of our salvation, of grace and faith and works. Grace is the cause of your salvation. It's the grounds of your salvation. Faith is the means of your salvation, and the good works are the result of your salvation. So many uh, people in this world that, that have not been taught correctly will easily get those things backwards. You'll, you, you might meet people uh, quite frequently who think that uh, getting into heaven is a matter of doing enough good works that they'll outweigh the bad works that they've done, that they can somehow tip the scales in their favor. But that's getting it, it all backwards. We don't do our good works in order to get into God's good graces and God's favor, but we do good works that flow out of God's workmanship in us. Grace, faith, and then the good works. And all of them, all of them are things for which God gets the glory because it's His workmanship from beginning to end. Our grace, our faith, our good works, all of it comes through the gift and the power of God working in us. A few illustrations to try to, to illustrate this. Not, oh, not necessarily perfect illustrations, but hopefully they can uh, demonstrate this. So imagine, imagine that I was destitute and poor, and my, my, my wife and my kids are at home, and they're starving because I don't have enough money to buy them food to eat. I can't do the good works that, that would be needed to do to be able to feed and clothe my own family, and we're destitute, we're starving, we're troubled. And then something happens. I have a, a, a rich uncle, and my rich uncle, he, uh, he dies, and he leaves me as an inheritance $5 million. And now I go from being utterly destitute and impoverished to, be, to being rich beyond my wildest imaginations. And, uh, and then because of that, you know, I go to the, to the uh, execution of the will and the executor hands me the check and I take that check and I bring it to the bank and now that money is transferred to my account and I go and I take it And I go straight to the grocery store and I stock up on all the favorite things that my family would love to be able to eat and I bring them home and I do the good works of feeding my family and nourishing them with with what I've been given. Now, if that happens, it would be very foolish of me to go home with all that food and say, look at what great works I have done to feed my family today and, and boast and take credit for how, 
how uh, wonderful I've been to do those good works. See, because the change in my state from being impoverished to being wealthy beyond my wildest dreams was because of the kindness and generosity of my uncle. It had nothing to do with anything in myself. And then the means of, of me uh, receiving that was the check that, that, he, that was written and was given to me and transferred to my account. And then the good works came because of the wealth that I had been given. Grace is the ground and the means. It's from the kindness and the riches and the generosity of God. Another example from the, from the scriptures we can think of is, imagine the, the ark in Noah's time. Now, when Noah was building that ark, he was building it in preparation for a great judgment of God that was going to come upon the earth. And, and probably you all know the story. God sent a great flood, and it wrought destruction in this earth. But Noah and his wife and Noah's three sons and his three sons' wives, they were saved from that destruction. And they were saved from that destruction by the means of that ark. And so we might look at that and we might say that uh, the ground of their salvation, the cause of it, was that God commanded Noah to build that ark. The cause of it was the building of the ark. The means of them being saved was getting on the ark and staying on the ark. And then the good works of them uh, repopulating the earth and building... uh, being the God's means by, of bringing a new creation into pass were the good works that resulted out of that. In all of those things, the credit and the praise and the glory goes back to God. The riches that he has given us freely by his grace. And, uh, and, and we receive that through faith. We trust in the promises that he has given. We trust in the truth of Uh, what has been declared in the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he rose again, and that he was exalted to the right hand of God to ever reign. And and we we receive the, the benefits of that salvation through faith in Christ. And then from that flows out good works that are themselves because of God's workmanship in us. And so it says that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It is the gift and the kindness and the generosity of God that has, that has wrought an incredible change in our, in our state. And because of that, we now have the ability to be a holy people, that God will come and he'll dwell in our midst, as, as we've seen, as it talks about him making the church a habitation of God through the Spirit. His people made to be his dwelling place. We have, it speaks in other places about how because of the work of Christ, we have access unto God. That what Christ did in his sacrifice in offering himself that, that he made the way, not into the tabernacle made with hands on the earth, but into heaven itself. And it says, therefore, let us come boldly. It says, therefore, let us, 
let us come boldly to the throne of grace. That is because Christ has made the way open. It says he has consecrated the way through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. The earthly tabernacle, it had a veil. And that veil blocked the way. It, it, it concealed the way uh, between the outer part and the most holy place in the inner court. And when Christ was crucified, a very incredible, significant thing happened in that earthly tabernacle at that time. It says the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. That was a, that was a powerful uh, signification that God was given. God was sending us an incredible message that the way into heaven itself, into the presence of God, had been made open by Jesus Christ, by what he had done. He had, he had made it possible for us to have access to the presence of God itself. And, and then Hebrews adds a layer of understanding on that when it says, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. That because his flesh was torn, the way into the Holy of Holies is made. Because Jesus Christ himself, he was, in fact, he is, in fact, the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. He said as much. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. In him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And it is in him that we have access to God and indeed have oneness and fellowship with God. Which is a beautiful theme that runs through all of Ephesians. There is statement after statement speaking of the union that the believer has with Christ. That our status is in Christ. All of the blessings that we've been talking about, all the privileges... The privilege to be a holy people to God. The privilege to be seated at the right hand of God, to be seated in heavenly places with Christ. The privilege of having access to the presence of God. The the privilege of being a people called by his name. The privilege of being uh, no more aliens and foreigners, but now we're of the household of God. All those privileges come to us through our status as being in Jesus Christ. We, we ought to know, it ought to be evident to us that they don't come to us on our own merit or our own deserving. They come to us through our union with Christ. And so in Ephesians 1.3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And then 110, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and on earth, even in him. And then 2.6, he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And then in Ephesians 3, 6, that the Gentiles, the nations, that they should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. All the blessings, all the privileges, all the spiritual riches that we have access to, 
we have access to through our position in Jesus Christ. See, see, he's the one that has the right to a heavenly throne. He's the one who has the right to full acceptance in the presence of God the Father. He's the one that has the right to an everlasting inheritance. He's the one who has the right to be proclaimed as fully and completely righteous. So as we have access to those blessings, we have access to them through our union with him. We're made partakers of these things as well. So being one with Christ, being united together with him, means that we are also one with one another as well. This is, the, this is one of the practical, lived-out consequences that, that, that it has for us. Now, it's a great uh, privilege and blessing to be one with Christ, and we might see uh, being one with Christ is it's, it's so precious, it's so easy, it's, so, it's just overflowing with joy because He is perfect, and He is lovely, and He is... He is, he is everything that we desire. But we are also one with one another. We are called one body. We have been called, it says, in one hope of our calling. We have one faith. We have one baptism. We have one Lord. We have been called, we have been given one spirit. We have one God and Father of all who is above all and who is in all. We are united together in this oneness with one another. And the practical outworking of that means that uh, we have uh, been called to endeavor to strive for that unity and that bond of peace between one another. And it's not always easy. It's not always easy to live out the oneness that we have been called to. Because why? We offend each other. We, we rub each other the wrong way. We, we, we make each other mad. We, we don't always get along. We annoy each other. And the devil would love to insert strife and conflict and division to tear us apart, to destroy our witness in the world, to destroy the, the happiness and the fellowship and the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we are called, we are called to endeavor, to put forth the effort of, of mind and action and thought that we would, that we would seek to, to gain a, a hold over our thoughts and our, the words that we speak to one another and the actions that we take toward one another, that all of them would work towards keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that we have together. Not to make us one body, but because we already are one body. We are united together. We are bound together because of the same faith, the same hope, the same calling, the same Lord that we have, the same Spirit that God has put in us. And, and, and so that unity we have, it's not of ourselves. It's not of ourselves. Um, I can come from, from miles away, from hours away, and come and share the joy and fellowship of Christ with you this weekend, even if I never met you before. Because the same Spirit of God is in you and in me. 
And God's Spirit knows God's Spirit. God's Spirit loves God's Spirit. There's there's unity. There's fellowship. We are bound together by something supernatural, by something divine, by something that is the power and working of God in us. But we're also, we're in the flesh. And so we will be tempted to strife, to conflict, to division in our relationships, in our churches. And so we are called to keep in mind the unity that we have in Christ and to actively strive for it. Think about the practical ways to put this into action in your life. How you speak to one another. The words you use. Uh, the thoughts that you have. Take every thought captive. You know, we, we, we looked at spiritual warfare and, and we didn't say a whole lot about what we're warring against. We see that Christ has won that victory against all powers. But it's every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It was the, the idolatry of Diana. It was the, the earthly powers that were opposed to the church. It was the false doctrines that were attempting to insert themselves. It was the, the false gods of the nations. It, it, it's the philosophies that are in that time and in our time that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God and would deceive us. We're called to take every thought captive. So when you start to have bitterness creep in and you start to think suspiciously of one another, of your brethren, take that thought captive. Take it to the presence of God and lay it before Him and pray that God would give you a right spirit and he would help you to strive towards unity. That he would help you to have the same forgiveness for one another that God has had for you in Christ Jesus. I'll close with this this passage. It speaks of the unity of the brethren in Psalm 133. Behold, How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That that unity, it's not something that we have within ourselves. It's something we must look to Christ for. I think of Philippians when 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 Paul exhorts them, have the same mind. Have the same mind. Well, that, that seems impossible. And in the flesh, it is impossible. You know, we can't agree on everything. Sometimes we can't even agree on anything. We don't see each other, the same, see things the same way. We'll be at odds with each other. How are we to have the same mind? Well, he goes on, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Brethren can dwell together in unity by having the mind of Christ. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And it goes on, it says, Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for the Lord, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore.